This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Welcome everybody to the Planet Microcap Showcase. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and we're doing, and this is actually going to be an episode of Planet Microcap Podcast that I host and publish episodes on a weekly basis. And it's for the series that I'm doing for the show called the Microcap Graduation Series. This is a series I've been very passionate about and wanting to get off the ground. And I'm so excited that we're not, not doing just one, but two of these episodes for this event, the Planet Microcap Showcase Virtual. And joining me for one of those episodes is a, a CEO, a gentleman who I, I've, I've interviewed many times in the past, has presented at our events uh, in the past, back when they were, I think actually in, their, in that nano cap, they might've been micro cap range actually when they did present. <laughs> and so I, I'm very thrilled to introduce uh, my guest. It is Kurt Sorshak. He is the chairman CEO and president of Zbeck Adsorption. It's a publicly traded company. The symbol is XBC on the TSX. Kurt, thank you for joining me today. How are you doing? Good and welcome. Uh, thank you for welcoming me here. It, it's great to have you on. And I'm so excited to, to dig into the story and kind of to talk about, you know, the, the whole point of this series is, is, you know, showcasing companies that start off in that nano microcap land and have navigated those sh sometimes sharky waters, sometimes minnowy, koi fishy waters uh, to, the, to the small cap uh, arena that you're at today and or sold for, uh, for nice multiples as well. So, you know, firstly, I guess I got to congratulate you on, on getting there. You know, that's, it's a big deal. It's a big step. Yeah, it is. It is. I mean, uh, you, you are right. When we first met uh, Robert, we were probably a nano cap. Our market cap was somewhere probably in the $15 million range or something right. like that, 15 to $20 million range. Share price was around 10, 10 to 12 cents. Yeah, yeah. That's, I, think, I think the first time I met you was when you, you were on Paul Andriola's panel at one of our events. I think, I think that was it, where, where he showcased okay. you on his small cap. Yeah, I remember that. I remember yeah, that. that was it. Yeah. So, all right. Well, so to start off here, you know, love to get your background. You know, how you, you started this, just got to where you're at today. So let's get your background and, and then we'll go from there. Okay. So Seabag's uh, uh, background is, uh, I think, a conventional one as to how many uh, companies start. It's a management buyout. We were part of a large industrial uh, multinational called Parker Hannafin. Uh, like a $16 billion company. And we were one of the divisions and I was the general manager. And back in 2005, uh, uh, basically uh, Parker came and said, well, we're gonna shut down or close, uh, close or sell the CBEC division because we wanna move the products down to the States. And two of my managers and I bought the company in 2007 and, and that got us started basically in the, in the gas purification space. Got it. Okay. So what was the problem that you saw? You know, you're, you're working at, the, at this large company, 
you see that they're looking to sell off this asset, you and your partners go and buy it. You know, what, what about this asset did you see that was of value? And especially in the, just the current atmosphere that you were looking to sell what the, the, those solutions to, you know, what, what did you uh, see? First, first and foremost, uh, we saved some jobs, including my own, right? So <laughs> yeah, right. I, I didn't get laid off. <laughs> we secured, we secured uh, our own jobs, but also the jobs of 50 or 60 people that we had at that time. Um, but, but more importantly, uh, we saw an opportunity on the renewable gas side. So we are, we are a, a company that is involved in renewable natural gas and hydrogen. And back then, when we were on the Parker Hannafin, we were the leading compressed air dryer manufacturer in North America. We had about 50% market share. But that is a very competitive business, and it's an industrial business. So it goes, you know, you, you provide uh, equipment to companies like Ingersoll Rand, Atlas Copco, the large compressor manufacturers, or other industrial companies who need air dehydration. And I was interested in renewable gas, in renewable natural gas, hydrogen, because I saw what was happening on the electricity side. And you might remember back in the 1990s, wind and solar came along and the electricity utilities started to add renewable content to their product offering. So it was not only anymore coal electricity or natural gas electricity, it was wind and solar. So if you were a client of a utility, you could buy renewable electricity. And I was convinced that the gas utilities needed a renewable product. So back in 2005, I was very interested in moving into renewable natural gas because I thought the gas utilities, in order to stay relevant, needed renewable natural gas. And that basically drove me uh, to do that acquisition besides securing jobs and my own, but also this vision that there is an opportunity going into renewable gas generation. Very good. So would you say that the original problem that you were trying to solve, has that changed over the years at all? Or I'm, I'm sure it has a little bit or no? Not really, not okay. really. I mean, um, clearly what, what is happening today more people recognize the impact of climate change and how it is, how important it is to reduce emissions, right? So uh, if you so want, what has changed is the macro environment is more favorable today, but the underlying assumptions that the gas utilities need to have renewable content is actually uh, the same, right? The gas utilities back then just didn't recognize that they needed renewable natural gas. Today, every gas utility basically wants renewable natural gas. And in some instances where countries have declared that they want to be net zero by 2050, the gas utilities recognize that they need to be 100% renewable by 2050. So they have basically a 30-year time frame uh, to convert from wherever they are today to, to basically 100% either renewable natural gas or hydrogen or a mix thereof. Very good. So, you know, for those who are not familiar with the ZBEX store, you know, what exactly is it that you're actually selling uh, to your customer base? Just, just so that we're, we're pretty clear here. Yeah, so we are selling systems that upgrade uh, biogas into renewable natural gas. So renewable natural gas is, is produced out of organic waste material that is processed 
with an organ uh, anaerobic digester, this anaerobic digester produces a, a biofertilizer and a biogas. That biogas consists of CO2 and CH4, and we basically strip out the CH4 and inject it into a pipeline. So that's part of our business. And the other part of our business is we are doing hydrogen, hydrogen generation and purification. And, and that is now also gaining more, more traction. But back then, back in 2005, 2007, 2009, we were primarily focused on renewable natural gas. Very good. All right. So in the early days of launching ZBEC, you know, what, what would you say were some of the growing pains starting out? Well, obviously the market. Um, uh, and, and that was also one of the, the, the mistakes I made is a timing mistake. If you are, if you are starting a company and, and you are having a vision of, of building your company, your timing for whatever product or service you want to offer needs to be good. My timing was lousy, right? So my timing, I thought that back in 2007, 2008, uh, that the gas utilities needed to add renewable content because the electricity utilities were already pushing renewable electricity, but that didn't happen. It only started to happen basically in 2016, 2017, that the gas utilities started to get on board with climate change and renewable products. And only when they started to recognize that they were losing thousands of customers a year to electrification, did they take the threat serious and then they started to uh, to basically push for renewable gas, either through a low carbon fuel standard or through renewable gas mandates. But between 2000 and let's say eight or nine and 2016, a seven or eight years that for a company are extremely difficult to survive if you don't have enough business, right? Absolutely. I mean, so what did you do to manage through those that, that seven, well, eight years? We downsized. We didn't spend any money. I didn't do any IR events. Um, and, and we basically focused on the business uh, that we had. Luckily, when we were part of Barker Hannafin, we had a lot of sales uh, to industrial companies of air products. So we had a lot of parts and service revenue coming in that could sustain us, but it was definitely a very difficult time. We had to downsize, um, we significantly reduced the workforce. Um, there was no spending. We monetized all the assets we had. We owned the building, we sold it, we leased it back. We owned patents, we sold them. Uh, we got a royalty-free license back. So anything to stay in business, right? So that was a really, really difficult time. And there were a couple of moments where we had crunch time, you know, can you make payroll? Can you not make payroll? Like typical thing that happens when you run a company and, and you try to grow it. Absolutely. So when, when exactly did the company go public? Um, and we went public in 2009. So in 2009, oh, so early on. Early on in 2007, we did the management buyout that gave us a good production facility, but we really didn't have the technology to do complex uh, a gas separation. Basically what we do is we separate molecules, right? 
Right. So we, we could do conventional separations, but not complex separations. So we were looking for a, either doing our own development or buying a company. We ended up buying a company that was public and we did a reverse takeover. And, and, and that basically um, um, uh, made us public in 2009 and gave us, uh, gave us the technology to do more complex separation like renewable natural gas, hydrogen, helium, and other things. So what was the, what was the thought process then? Like, was that the original intention that you, like, okay, we wanna go public in order for us to do this transaction? Or were you like, okay, we want to do this transaction. So it's probably best for us to go public in order for us to make sure that this all, that this can- No, it was basically to get to the technology. Okay. So we wanted to do a transaction for the technology, but that company was public. So the only way I could, I, I could achieve, I, I couldn't take them private. I didn't have the money. So the only way we could do it was a reverse takeover, which made us public. And- but as I said, given that I had a timing mistake that the, that the utilities or the market wasn't ready for renewable natural gas made this very bad. I mean, to go public, to be public, a small nano cap and then not being profitable, not growing is horrible, right? I mean, you get, because your competitors take your balance sheet or your financial statements and go to your customer and say, you can't buy from those guys. They hardly make any money or they have huge losses, right? So being public is the worst thing if you're loss making and don't have a good, exciting story to tell. And, and those, uh, I call them the seven mega years between 2009 and 2016 um, uh, were really hard. I mean, that, that was not an easy time. So, so for you, I mean, what ultimately then tipped the scale to wanting to go public as a microcap with all these things that you saw that you knew you're like, all right, timing sucks. This is going to be brutal, but we got, we, we have to do this. I didn't know it was going to be brutal. Oh, you didn't? Was, okay. You know, if you're an entrepreneur, <laughs> you are optimistic. You always think everything is going to work out as you hope it's going to work out. Unfortunately, that's not the case, right? So uh, I was very bullish when, when we did this reverse takeover. I thought that's fantastic. Now we have the technology, we have the manufacturing capacity and capabilities. We are set, we are ready to grow. Unfortunately, the market wasn't there, right? Big mistake. So, um, uh, but, but, you know, climate change, I always say climate change is like a river. It flows only in one direction. There's no... You cannot make a big strategic mistake. Yeah. If, if you bet on climate change, it's probably a good bet that you're going to have something happening on your technology somehow. What is important is that the timing is right. Yeah. If you get the timing wrong, right. like I did, and, and there's like a seven year gap in demand in between, that's a long, long time. Right. If it's a one or two year gap, it's easier to manage, but it's, it's a longer gap. It becomes very, very hard. Yeah. I mean, just from a personal perspective, I mean, how did you manage that mental anguish? I, I mean, I hope you had some kind of uh, hobbies to like uh, get, get take the steam off a little bit. No hobby. There was no hobby. Basically, you know, if, if you run a company, you don't go on vacation, really. Uh, you go on a vacation, but the company is always with you. The, 
the issues are always with you. Your phone is always on, your laptop is on. So there's no getting away from it. And um, yeah, it, it, again, you know, you, you rely on uh, probably a handful of people that are close to you. You have a good working relationship and you try to hold the ship together, right? And, and it, it, I mean, even in the worst times, we had like 50 people employed. That's still quite a, a good number of folks yeah. where you need to make payroll every two weeks. You have all your utilities to pay. You have customers, you need to make deliveries. And you know, all of those things happen. And one of the difficult parts is if you are nano cap and you are, let's say, undercapitalized, and then you start growing. That's a completely se separate difficulty you have to face. Yeah, mm -hmm. you think, oh, fantastic, I'm getting all those orders now. No, that's not good. Too many orders too quickly is not a good thing because you need to then manage your growth. You've basically, we went from being part of a multinational with very good systems that we could maintain because we had like 120, 150 people employed. So you had systems in place to control quality, delivery, suppliers, everything, right? So we were good. We had an integrated quality management with ISO 901, ISO 1401, OSHA 1801. I mean, you know, everything, but it all costs money. You need people to maintain those systems. And as you shrink, you get rid of those people. So your systems disappear. And then you, okay, you have a minimal stuff. You can't go below a certain, if you have a certain technology, you can't go below a certain number. And then you reach that number, but now you don't have the systems anymore. And then suddenly the orders come back. Okay, so now I need to grow. You don't have the quality systems anymore. You don't have the supplier uh, qualification. You, you know, a lot or finance, your accounts receivable stuff is not there anymore as they used to be. So there's no accounts receivable insurance being followed up properly. So suddenly it's now you're really like a startup. Now you need to put all those systems back in place to make sure that you basically can run the company and, and grow accordingly. So growth in itself becomes a huge challenge when you're small and then, then you start growing rapidly. So Kurt, I mean, during that time, did you ever have to raise any capital or were those, I'm, I'm no. sure those conversations, no, not at all. No, no, I couldn't raise any capital. I mean, we are in Canada, folks here are extremely conservative. There is no money out there for you uh, uh, to raise a, a, a capital when, when the markets are not very promising. You can't really tell an exciting story. Yeah, you can tell a story, but there's no market. So why tell a story, right? So what we did is, as I said, we monetized all the assets. We owned our uh, manufacturing facility. We sold it. We had a whole bunch of patents. We sold patents only to get some money in. And then we basically, we lived off the recurring revenue out of the existing install base uh, to just take over. And we were very, very frugal. There was no spending on anything, right? Wow. So that, that's how you survive. Yeah. That's pretty incredible. I mean, because I, I think most, most growth stories, especially in the US, you would think like, okay, in order to fund, you know, the orders as they're starting to come in and build, put those systems in place, you know, most people think, okay, you're going to private equity at the very least or venture or something just to get some more capital in the door, just to 
not just fulfill the orders, but put those systems in place. So, so I give you an example of what I had yeah, to do. Incredible. Uh, yeah. 2016, we started that orders started to come in. I saw the gas utilities are certainly in Europe and in North America getting really interested in, 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 um, in renewable natural gas and we're starting to place orders. But now you need working capital. Those are multi-million dollar orders which you need to fulfill. How are you gonna do that? So I had to go, I had no investment bank. So no investment banker wanted to deal with me either because I was too small, too unimportant. There was not enough money to be made out of you know, raising $2 million. So what did I do? I had to take basically head in hand and go around private investors and collect a, a convertible for like a million dollars. So I, I went around Toronto collecting a million dollars for working capital. So I, I raised that convertible and then I had a million dollars. That now got me some more orders. I could execute a little bit more. Like five months later, I, I went around again with my hat and collected another 2 million in convertible, yeah? So, and then I had a little bit more and then the company started growing. Then I got some support from uh, um, EDC, which is Export Development Canada, like a, a, a government uh, export corporation. Mm -hmm. So they gave me some guarantees. So suddenly I could hand out some guarantees. Right. And then I, then, also, uh, then uh, I, I started to get some smaller investment banks who got interested and they helped me then raise the first um, five or seven million dollars. And then we, we started, That's when then it started happening. Right? Gotcha. All right. That's how, how that happened. Yeah. Wow. So door to door I, knocking. Okay. How about $30,000, $50,000? Wow. Well, so why, so why did you do that vehicle in order to get that first million in the door to do it via convertible uh, versus just direct investment? I mean, was that the only Nobody thing wanted do? to do equity. They all wanted eight or 9% interest rate and a convertible. They didn't want to have equity at that wow. point. Right. Wow. So you just had to do what you had to do? Yes. So that's what we did. <laughs> <laughs> Good stuff. So, so then, so, okay. So I, I, I have a few other questions, but I'm going to fast forward to one here because I think we're, we're right there. So what would you then say was the, the turning point from, you know, I, I mean, it, it, I would say it was from that 2016 point onward, you see, you look at the chart, you see that it's kind of, it's a steady climb up you know, from micro cap to small cap. So what was that big turning point in 2016 that you started to see, okay, more orders are starting to come in on a more consistent basis? Yeah, uh, the turning point was basically when the gas utilities came out and started talking about renewable gas. Then it became real. I mean, if you as a small, as a nano cap comes out and talks about an opportunity, nobody really listens because you are nobody. But if a gas utility like SoCal Gas comes out and says renewable natural gas, a very important part of our uh, business going forward and of our future. Oh, okay, uh, renewable natural gas. I've heard that before. There was this tiny company that talked about that too. And then suddenly more and more gas utilities came out. Uh, they pushed uh, you know, low carbon fuel standards, renewable gas mandates. And then suddenly investors started to realize especially the small cap investors, right? There's a, a whole group of investors out there uh, on brokers that are focused on small companies. And then they started to listen because they started to get interested. 
and I had, you know, I had some folks who bought millions of shares at like 10, 12 cents, right? So that, that was a great investment at that time. And then they, and, and then the share price started to move because there was interest. But I think people started to realize and the verification didn't come through me or my growth. The verification came through much bigger players in the industry that suddenly stated that renewable, the natural gas was a thing. And now the same is happening with hydrogen. I mean, I could have talked two years ago or three years ago about hydrogen and nobody would have said anything, you know. Oh, hydrogen, yeah, they always talk about hydrogen. It's never anything. Right. But now hydrogen is a thing, right? So now everybody talks about hydrogen suddenly hydrogen is very, very exciting. Got it. So what would you say between from that 2016 to where we are now? What were those, you know, I'm sure there's more than one, uh, you know, what, what were some of the main inflection points that happened that you really start to see, not just the growth in interest, but you know, you start to see share price go up, market cap go up, you know, what, what were some of those things? Well, some bigger contract things, the bigger right? contract some, ones. some of the partnerships. I mean, if you're a small cap or at this time, let's say I was a, a micro cap, I, I moved from small cap to micro cap, let's say. And, and then um, what happens is if you make some significant wins, order wins, either with you know, high profile customers or a higher amount that you win, which serves like as a verification that your business is actually maybe something, right? Because early on, it's always a bet on those, those investors. I, I feel like they bet on different things. You know, this might work, this might work, maybe this doesn't work, but they put some money down early on and then they see if the company can make it. And order wins uh, or, or strong partnerships are very important. And it's basically a, a, a validation that what you're doing is okay. If you announce a partnership with a very credible company, a larger company, that's a validation. If you win a, a 20, 30 million dollar order, that's a validation. And that then helps your share price get go. Absolutely. So then at, as the CEO of a publicly traded microcap company with fast growing business, you know, it's really, you know, more orders coming in, larger and larger contracts. You know, how did you balance the responsibilities of business operator and CEO? Well, uh, you, as, you, as your organization expands, you need to bring in more folks again. So you build your organization. In my case, in 2017, we brought on, a, I went to the board and said, guys, I can't handle all this work anymore. That's just too much. You know, even if I work 18 hours a day, I won't be able to handle it anymore. So we hire the COO. So you bring on somebody then who, and, and you divide the responsibilities. You have your CFO, you have your COO, you run basically, for, for me, what I would say today, my main responsibility is, is making sure I manage investor expectations, right? Because that's very important. And the other thing is make sure we are well-funded at all times. So today my role is different than back then, but as, as you grow, you need to make sure you bring the right people on to help you grow the company. Absolutely. Don't worry. We're going to get to that investor expectations thing for sure. You know, I'm, I'm saving, I'm saving that one. So everybody listening, don't worry. We're going to get there. I promise. Yeah. <laughs> so, so one other technical question on, you know, running a public company, you just mentioned, you know, you went to your board of directors. I'm curious, you know, what was your thought process 
when you're putting together your board of directors? Did you want to, is it independent? You know, how, do you think about board diversity? You know, what was your, what was your thought process there? Well, uh, clearly uh, independence is very important. Yeah. And when, when, when you look at the, first, we had a board of three board members, a very small board, because when you have no money, you can't pay anybody. You know, it's not like you want to run a small board uh, because those guys you might get on a board are very knowledgeable and they can help you, but you need to pay them at least something, right? Uh, and people don't want to be paid in shares that are not worth anything and haven't moved in years. So, uh, you know, so there's a limitation as to what you can do from a board of directors perspective. But at once we started growing, I basically started to look uh, who are, um, uh, how should I put that? Who are good board members? Board members who would give the company credibility because at the end of the day, investors not only look at the management, they also look at, you know, who are the board members who are gonna oversee this management? Are those guys just guy, uh, friends of the CEO who's gonna bring those guys on the board and then they are all like a big club? Or is this really an independent board? And, and my opinion was always, I needed to make sure that we have a lot of uh, credibility on the board. So, uh, uh, and I was very fortunate. I have a, a, a good group of contacts here in, in Montreal, and I was able to reach out to some really good people uh, who could help me uh, uh, grow the company, right? So, but they're all independent basically. And over the last 24 months, if you so want, but they were all guys. So we were all like a old boys club, independent, but all like retired folks on the board. And, and then ESG came along. ESG is something that's only happened over the last two, three years. And then diversity became a much bigger, bigger part of uh, uh, board construction. And, but now at that point, I already had enough money so we hired uh, um, uh, an independent company uh, uh, that basically looked for uh, the right female representation, right? So we basically uh, did a, a board matrix of what kind of skills we wanted to have on the board that was run by the governance committee, which is independent. And then basically we discussed that. And then we gave that as a mandate to the consultant and the consultant basically went out and started to look which kind of uh, folks are out there that we could basically approach and engage. And then, then we basically diversified our board. So now we're gonna have three female on the board and about five, I believe, male board representatives and uh, all independent. And that's very important. And I think the stronger your board, uh, the more credibility you gain as a company because strong board members give you a lot of credibility. Their credibility reflects onto you, onto the company. You, you, you choose board members that are not very recognizable or not very um, uh, um, independent. That comes out relatively quickly and it weakens you. So I think for a company, very important to create a strong board. Absolutely. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. All right. So Kurt, now we'll get to the guidance question. 
Here we go. Investor expectations. Now, uh, you know, I, for those who know the Zbex story, you know, I'm sure they've been waiting for us to talk about this at this point, you know, I, and, and, and really it's because, you know, recently the company put out news um, having to adjust its guidance uh, for its full year 2020 and then announce what those results were. Um, and, and, you know, when it comes to the idea, the topic of guidance, I mean, this is such a hotly debated topic amongst not just, not just, company management teams, but also investors, you know, should small micro nano caps give guidance, you know, especially, yeah. you know, they're so small, most of them, you know, you're, you're putting a lot, a lot of additional pressure on yourself than you already probably have being a public company management team. So, you know, I, I'd love to hear not, not what happened, because I think that's all been publicly stated. You can talk about that, but I'm just curious as to your thought process on why you wanted to give guidance. You know, it, it, did you feel as you were growing, did you feel compelled as a public company CEO that it's important to give guidance to investors? So love to hear your thoughts. Yeah. So obviously it's a, as you say, a hotly debated topic, right? Um, my, my take on this was always, um, and it was not market driven, it was internally driven. I wanted to set a, a public marker, basically saying to my management, listen guys, we are developing a budget, what's our budget? Okay, this is our budget. So are we comfortable with that budget? Yes, we are comfortable with that budget. Okay, then that is what we're gonna be doing. And the moment, as long as it's internal, you can always change it, right? Who cares? You change it. But as long as, as soon as you make it public, very difficult to change. So now everybody has to commit within the management team. Everybody knows what the target is. What did we state we're going to be doing? And everybody hopefully gets aligned to that. Now, there's obviously risk involved in this, especially if you're a, a, a micro, a small cap company. You, you are not as stable as a large cap who has a lot of predictable revenue streams as a small cap or micro cap, your revenue streams are way more unpredictable. You lose one large customer, your revenue might be off. You, you screw up on a number of projects like we did, you are in trouble, right? Your, your revenue goes off, your profits go away very quickly, but I still maintain, and that's why we have given guidance again. Uh, you, you need to manage that risk. You need to commit to something. And I find it's fair if you make it public. Why just keep it internal to say, okay, my guidance is going to be 110 to 130 this year. And, and that's where we think we're going to come out or maybe even better, but that's what we're going to be stating. And that's what we're going to try for. And everybody in my team now, knows exactly what we have to do, right? That is what we stated. We are all behind it because we all agreed on it and now we are driving it and there's no hiding it and there's no coming and say, oh, Kurt, maybe uh, we should be lowering our revenue because we are having difficulties here. No, we are not lowering the revenue because we committed to this. So let's find a way as to how we're gonna manage that, right? And sometimes, I mean, it went well for a couple of years, even so we were small, very small, and we had, you know, to manage that. But sometimes you get caught and, and, and the reaction is bad. But at the end of the day, I still believe that it's the right thing for at least 
for my management style to do. I try to find a consensus as to what we're going to be doing. And then I'm going to say, okay, this is what we're going to do. And we're all going to work towards it. And everybody knows. And the investors can judge if we're going to stick deliver on it or if we don't deliver on it. And if you don't deliver on it, yeah, you get a bill and your share price goes down. But hopefully we rebuild that credibility and then, okay, you, you, but it's not about the investor. It's about our own targets that we are setting and we are giving the investor the opportunity to see it. And, and, and that's really commendable. I truly, you know, like, all right, Hey, we're, internally, we're all on the same page here. So why not share? But at the end of the day, like there might be some things that are out of your control, right? Yeah. Where things yeah. happen. You can't meet the guidance. I mean, we'd co like, as you said, in the, in, in, when you came out that you had adjusted guidance, COVID yes. took a hit, you know, that happens. So yes. if, I mean, even if, so if you're all on the same page internally, you know, I, why, I guess maybe the other side of the argument would be, well, then, you know, if you're all strong in that and that's on, uh, that's on the whiteboard, right. <laughs> in the office, we're hitting this, no questions asked. We're going to get there. Why make it public, especially in, in times like these, I mean, just, just well, we gave guidance for 2020 before COVID hit, right? Right, right. But we now give guidance again. Obviously, we've been very careful on giving right. that guidance, right? Because right. you get rewarded if you meet or beat your guidance, because right. investors like some form of predictability. And I like that too. So I, you know, I, I'm putting myself in, in, in investor shoes. If, if I have a CEO come out and say, okay, this is what I'm going to do. And then he does what he says he, he's going to do. Great. I like that guy, right? So I want to be that guy. I want to basically say, okay, we're going to do this revenue. We're going to do that much EBITDA, that much profit, and then try and, and meet it or beat it. And if you can't consistently underperform, clearly you're doing something wrong. Right. Absolutely. And, and yeah. your share price should maybe not be where it is because you cannot fill the expectation. But mm -hmm. I have no, no illusions that investors constantly monitor that. Now, many companies, and especially in the small cap space, I understand they don't want to give guidance because it's very difficult to do. It's very unpredictable as to what happens. It's easy on the cost side, but on the revenue side, on the profitability side, it's a lot more difficult. You have to do a lot of work to come out with some guidance you want to stand behind, right? It's it's so hard. I mean, I was just going to ask, like, what, I mean, would you recommend it to other, maybe there's some CEOs and public companies, small micro nano cap CEOs listening right now, you know, would you? Well, it depends on what industry you're in. Like our delivery cycles are longer. So I have contracts that run like, five, eight, nine months. So like I have an order book now that's about $100 million. So I have some visibility going forward. Other companies, they have much shorter order, order and delivery cycles. So for them, it might be a lot more difficult to predict forward. It depends on where you are, right? I don't think there's a one right answer for, for everybody out there, but for, for the business we are running, we can predict some things. There are some uncertainties and, and you can see what happened to us during the COVID period. It's not so that I set very conservative targets that I'm gonna be meeting so or so. We set very challenging targets that 
we think we can meet or beat. But if something like COVID comes along, everything goes out the window, right? And and then you stand there naked, uh, you know, the water has gone out and you go like, oh, holy yeah. smokes, <laughs> not good. <laughs> yeah, man. I mean, look, dude, I, I you know, I, I feel for you because it's, you know, look, you're going to, you probably went through a lot more headaches than you probably were hoping to deal with, it, you know, uh, you know, look, you're already dealing with a lockdown in Montreal, you know, let alone missing guidance for the last, <laughs> for 2020. Yeah. Well, I, I, again, you know, those are things we didn't, we didn't foresee clearly. Uh, they've impacted our business. I think I could make a reasonable case. I think the investors, if I continue to deliver on what I say are going to be doing, the investors will say, okay, that was an exceptional circumstance. That was COVID. There was a significant impact and it hit them. But going forward, I still need to deliver. I don't want to have a situation where I now say, well, I'm not going to give guidance because it's too unpredictable. It's not that unpredictable. You know, I can, I can be cautious and give guidance and then try to beat, uh, meet or beat it, right? I still... And my management team is committed to that, right? You ask my folks, they know exactly what our guidance is, right? They know exactly what we are driving this year. So it's not so people in my organization don't know that. I, I just, you know, I, I'm really appreciative of you being open about this because, you know, I just, I, I like the idea of feeling like I'm a fly in the wall in that in that management room conversation that, and I feel like I was a little bit because I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a tough day. I mean, what was that day like? You're like, all right, we're not going to hit our guys. What, what, what happened? It's a, it's, a, it's a tough discussion because people need to put, you know, their name down and say, okay, I'm good with this number now. That is the number. And, and then we go, you know, I might think we should be doing more. Uh, again, I gonna be over optimistic in what I think we should be achieving. But at the end of the day, when the whole team agrees that this is the number, then this is the number and that we're going to be going. And you Absolutely. need to bring your folks around that. I think that's very, it's very strong because the people whom you work with, they are then committed, right? They're really committed to trying to beat that. Absolutely. All right. Well, Kurt, I mean, you know, tell us a little bit about, you know, from what you can tell us some, you know, some growth drivers moving forward. You know, we, we hit this little blip. But now what's going, what, what's going on, uh, you know, moving forward here for ZBEC? Well, I, I think um, our macro trends are actually improving, right? Uh, we've been enjoying really strong growth over the last couple of years because of what's happening in renewable natural gas. I think with the Biden administration coming in in the U.S. now, you're going to see a significant acceleration of a climate change policy that will be very positive. Um, the RINs, those are the renewable identification numbers under the renewable fuel standard. They have, I think, quadrupled in price since Biden is in. So renewable natural gas is going to be big business in the, in the US over the next five, seven years. Hydrogen is now coming on top of that. Uh, we've just made an acquisition late last year of a hydrogen uh, company. Uh, one of the leading uh, on-site small-scale hydrogen producers in Europe. Uh, we're going to bring those products over here into North America now. I think there's a great growth opportunity for us for on-site hydrogen generation. Um, and, and again, 
everybody is now talking about hydrogen and the gas utilities are starting to recognize that ultimately they will have to go to hydrogen. If, if, if governments wanna go to net zero by 2050, that means it's gonna be hydrogen at the end of the day. So hydrogen is gonna be an important contributor to our climate change policies. And I think CBEC is in a great position. We're gonna be a niche player. I mean, you're gonna have all the oil companies, all the industrial gas companies, everybody wants to play in hydrogen or in renewable natural gas. I don't know if you know that, but the oil companies are now starting to invest directly into renewable gas production, uh, product development, right? So they investing into project developers for renewable natural gas because they need the carbon certificates. And the same is happening on the hydrogen side. Everybody wants to be in hydrogen. So we're going to be a niche player, but that niche is trillions of dollars. So a niche for me can be billions of dollars. So clearly, I think we're in a great position to grow, but there are still we a small company. Yeah, we've grown now from, I think in, in 2016, our low was eight cent. Yeah, and our high was I think 11.50 or something like that, right? So we've gone from eight cent to 11.50 and now we are back down to about $4.80, $5, so somewhere around there. But there's great opportunity, I think, uh, on the investment side, but there's also great opportunity from, from a company perspective for us to grow. And, and, I'm, and my next question, I'm not trying to be cute, I really promise. All right, did we give 2021 guidance <laughs> yet? We did. We did. Oh, we did, okay, all right. Yeah. So my 2021 guidance is 110 to 130 million. Uh, in revenues, that's over 100% growth this year, mm -hmm. and uh, being uh, EBITDA positive. Got it. So uh, returning to, to to positive cash flow. Basically. Gotcha. All right, I got two more questions for for you before I let you go. So, you know, what what would you say has been the biggest learning lesson uh, being CEO of a publicly traded microcap and now small cap? Um, I think a, a a big a big lesson is. Don't overpromise and underdeliver. <laughs> yeah. Your personal credibility is extremely important, especially if you're a small company. In a small company, a lot depends on the CEO, on the founder CEO, if you so want. And, and people invest not so much in the company than they invest in the CEO. They believe the vision, they believe the CEO who tells them something. That's also why I think giving guidance is important for me because it helps me uh, solidify my credibility if I can beat it. If I, if, I can't, if I can't meet it, then obviously my credibility is shot so or so, right? So I need to try to be credible. And I think that is probably the most important one. Now on the, on the business side, you need to have a product that the, the market wants. You cannot be early or late. You need to be there at the right time with the right product. But that's a different that's a different challenge, right? So timing needs to be right for your solution, service, or technology that you offer. But from a, for me personally, I think interacting with the investment communities, uh, try to maintain your credibility, and and uh, uh, that helps your company, that helps you raise money, um, and that does a lot of good things for you. 
Absolutely. No, that's I, I, a lot of humbling lessons learned, I'm sure, over the years. And I appreciate you yeah. saying all the, all the yeah. yeah. Uh, I think especially, no. uh, you know, entrepreneurs always want to be positive. I, you know, you yeah. always see the, the, the rosy future and the blue sky, and there's so much opportunity. But you cannot overpromise and underdeliver. You need to temper yourself to basically say, yeah, the opportunities are huge, right? They are saying now the hydrogen economy is $12 trillion. I mean, this is such an insane number, you know, <laughs> that you can't go around and say it's $12 trillion. What's your opportunity in this? You know, where is the niche you're going to be playing because you're a smaller company? How are you going to do this? So you need to right. temper your enthusiasm with something that you can achieve. And then whatever it is, I think the investment community is going to be thankful for that. Absolutely. Well, you know what? My, my next question was going to be advice that you would have for CEOs of, well, here, I'll, I'll ask you formally because I'm sure there's some kernels in what you just said in this question, but of what you just said, but here we go. So what, what advice do you have for CEOs of private companies looking to go public as microcap, uh, as new CEOs of publicly traded microcap companies? Yeah, I, I, again, I think there's a difference between Canada and the US. In, in Canada, investors are considerably more conservative. So it's a lot more difficult to raise money here in Canada, in my opinion, than it is in the US. The US investors are more uh, are risk takers. So they are willing to put some money down and give you money to do whatever you say you're going to be doing. Here very quickly, and I think that's why you saw in, in, in the share price, our share price after I missed guidance dropped 65%, right? A pretty significant reaction to a miss. Um, I don't think that would necessarily have happened in the US, but here it happened. So it's different where you are, I would say. Um, again, um, uh, you know, being credible, in your predictions, what you are saying you're going to be doing, uh, try to meet those those statements you're going to be making, and then and then you know the market needs to be there. Make sure um, uh, the opportunity you're seeing is a real opportunity, and not fool yourself into believing that there is an opportunity where there is none, or it's too early, too late, or your technology is not the right technology. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, with that, Kurt, where can my audience go and find more information about ZBEC adsorption? Well, you're going to find it on our website, zbecinc.com. You find some of the information. Uh, I, I know now I've been told there's also a lot of public information on stock boards and other things that are available to everybody. Uh, so there's lots of information out there I'm sure you can find. Absolutely. Well, Kurt, this was an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for your openness, sharing your, your insights and everything that's been going on at ZBEC. I really do appreciate it. And uh, I'm excited to do our next update to, to hear about uh, maybe hitting some of that guidance, right? You know? Yes, yes. <laughs> that, that would be a good one. <laughs> Very good. Kurt, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Okay. Thanks, Robert. Also, bye-bye. Bye-bye.